Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Libyan analyst Anas Elgomati to speak about the situation in Libya, as well as Libya's role in the conflict in neighboring Sudan. If you enjoy this content, please consider donating to the show by going to TheAnalysis.News and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get on the mailing list so that you're informed every time a new episode is published, and also go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis Hyphen News. Hit like on all the videos you want to watch and hit subscribe so that you're notified every time a new episode drops. See you in a bit with Anas. Joining me now is Anas El Gomati. He's the founder and director of the Libyan think tank, the Sadek Institute. Thank you so much for joining me, Anas. Thanks, Talia. I appreciate it. There's so much I want to speak to you about today, but I think we should start off with what happened after the NATO intervention in Libya in 2011, where Muammar Gaddafi was ousted from power, he was killed, and fighting continued afterwards. And there was a UN-led process which tried to establish elections and uh, a functioning government. I think it's safe to say now that that process has unfortunately failed and that there are two rival governments now, one in the West, one in the East. What's going on right now in Libya? Well, it's a really complicated story, and it's always good to start where you pick things up from. So after 2011, I think there are now, it's it's difficult to look back in retrospect and try and condense those 10 years together. But I would say for the first three years, things were not as bad as they are now. Um, you know, there was an episode of violence that was, was fairly limited in comparison to the last two conflicts that Libya has endured. So one in 2011, 2014, and 2019. But I don't know whether or not Libyans would always consider what happened in 2011 to be a civil war. Of course, as you alluded to, NATO's intervention was heavy on that. But I think it also limited a lot of the potential violence that could have occurred, uh, as we saw in Syria. And I think that's one thing that has to be uh, has to be said about the 2011 intervention. In comparison, the 2014 and 2009 intervention contained the very same players um, and contained more players. And I think that's where um, you know the, the UN's remit and the turning a blind eye to the kind of malign influence of a lot of regional players um, and and world players that have, have have continued to destabilize Libya has kind of been forgotten. But from 2011 to 2014, Libya was fairly stable and its progress was actually quite positive in comparison to right now. So there were elections in 2012, 80% turnout, very high, high numbers for Libya's first elections. Um, and it was, there was so much pluralism in that, in that first parliament that Libya elected that it was a hung parliament. You know, there were so many different groups there because uh, 60% of the seats were given to independent candidates, not running on a party list. 40% were given to a party list. And I think in retrospect, some of those things might now look like a mistake. Maybe what Libya needed at the time was strong party affiliation so that a bloc come to dominate and say, this is the direction that we're going to take after the elections. But many argued at the time that we don't really know what the Libyans want. We don't know who the Libyans are. So let them elect as many Libyans as possible and let them move forward. So in retrospect, the first couple of years were okay. Yes, there were militias that were on the ground at the time, but they were not conducting the kind of violence that we've seen them conduct since 2014 and since 2019. So for the first three years, um, up until Libya's second elections in 2014, the situation was fairly stable on the ground. Um, there was one single government. It was elected by uh, the Libyan people en masse. And I think in that sense, there was there was much to be celebrated. And I think you know Libya's economic outlook, uh, its political outlook, and its stability in the region 
were good. In 2014, we had a civil war, um, and it was along the lines of the, or it's down to the rise of this actor, um, who many may know of and many may not know of, but his name is Khalifa Haftar. And I think, you know, um, your viewers should know who he is. He has the longest standing political career of anybody in the entire Middle East and North Africa. It spans 54 years. He emerged in 1969 with Muammar al-Gaddafi in a coup against King Idris um, and then has gone on to, to at least launch seven power grabs over a career now that spans, as I said, 54 years. And those power grabs are not just coups. They're defections from the very partners that he launched those coups with. And, you know, if we start looking into today's today's recent news, the last 24 hours of what has happened in Libya, which, which we may come onto in, in, a, in a little while, you'll see Khalifa Haftar's fingerprints and his political DNA all over that. But to set the scene, the first three years were not so bad. Um, I think abandoning NATO's biggest mistake was most likely abandoning um, Libya's political future and the role of regional actors and not immunizing Libya from those two things. You know, there were the, 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 the creation of militias that need to be integrated into a unified military and a subservient military, which Libya has never experienced and was the reason why Libyans overwhelmingly overthrew the Gaddafi regime because they wanted to live in a, in a society, in a, in a state that was not controlled by a family or by personal militias, um, you know, but by a neutral state security service that respects human rights and allows you to have the same level of freedom no matter where you're from or what your surname is or what your tribe is from, or what part of the country you're from. Um, since 2014, that has been, you know, uh, quite the opposite. Khalifa Haftar emerged and, and declared himself to be the leader of the self-styled Libyan National Army or um, in Arabic, the Libyan Arab Armed Forces. Um, and with that, he launched this coup and, and a, a war on terror um, that has split the country in two, split the country between two rival parliaments, the first parliament that was elected in 2012, a second parliament that was elected in 2014, and then two rival administrations that were unified temporarily after Libya's last war in 2019 that Khalifa Haftar launched, um, but has since, as you mentioned, has since kind of slipped back to another partition after we failed to have elections in late 2021. So, you know, it is a bit of Groundhog Day in Libya because there have been lots of changes in the middle of the last 12 years. But at the same time, for so much change, it's almost like old wine in new bottles. The same actors are still there from 2011, and they're still here in, in 2023. Um, and despite the unification process, the UN process that was supposed to unify all these different parts and put Humpty Dumpty back together again, you still have two different governments under different acronyms, you still have two rival military formations, still have two rival parliaments. I would argue that the NATO intervention is what pushed Humpty Dumpty to fall off the wall, so to speak. I mean, of, of course, Gaddafi was not liked by his people or, or by some of them at least maybe some of them supported him but right, right. a lot of people would argue that they wanted they were uprising against Gaddafi and they didn't want him to be in, in power anymore but the, the NATO intervention was not conducted in a way that would ensure that there would be something left of the country afterwards or I mean in 2011 you had so many people fleeing the country and um, you know refugees trying to escape Libya and to get to Europe. And a lot of people, unfortunately, died in, in the Mediterranean trying to make those crossings. So, it, you know, the intervention wasn't benign. And I'm sure the mandate was not conducted or, or not designed in such a way to ensure that there would be functioning institutions. And we're still seeing that, you know, there is a power vacuum. And now you have, as you said, Haftar, who has his 
own interests and you have these these rival governments. So just bringing it back to right now, you have a, a government in the West, the the GNA, which is supported by the UN, but I think a lot of other European powers and um, by Turkey. And then in the East, you have um, a house. Yeah, exactly. Like the a House of Representatives, which mm-hmm. has just suspended uh, Fatih Bashara. So what's going on there? Why was he suspended? And what is what was his vision, at least, of trying to unify Libya or was he just trying to grab power and resources? Can I just touch on the, on your on your point? I actually agree with you, but just on your initial point about NATO, I think sure. the question about the uh, NATO's intervention, lack of planning, the fact that members of NATO have since gone on to undermine Libya's stability tells you a lot about the way that that uh, organization functions. But the reality is, is that why are these states, what we consider to be strong states, or we thought were strong states, why are they so brittle? I mean, that's really the reality. I mean, a lot of these states, the authoritarian states, the myth of the strongman, and it comes into Fatih Bashar's own personal story because that's really the crux of this story with this parallel administration that was created. They're brittle states. I mean, they look like they're very strong, but the moment that you poke them, they start to disintegrate because there are no institutions. There is no plan for a day after, and they're designed to be coup-proofed. And I think this is where a lot of these states, whether it be Saddam's Iraq, whether it be Bashar al-Assad's Syria, or whether it be Gaddafi's Libya, or tomorrow even Egypt's Sisi, and as we're looking at uh, the fall of of Sudan and, and its disintegration into a civil war, the rise of of Hameti, these places, they have such personalized, or the, the institutions are so personalized and they're so, um, you know, they're so brittle that once there is any intervention from the, from the outside or there is an uprising, then they start to fall apart. But let me come to this question about Fatih Bashar because it's. It's a really interesting point that you've raised about what is his motivations and, and his own personal story is fascinating. I mean, what you have with the story of Fatih Bashara is an individual who joined the revolution in 2011. He was a former Air Force pilot um, and led a, a revolutionary armed group, a militia from the city of Misrata, which became famous during uh, the revolution for being a, a real uh, kingmaker and power broker in Western Libya and the, uh, where, the, where the capital is in Tripolitania. Um, and then he, he's gone on to then uh, join, over several years, the political class. He was elected as a member of parliament in 2014, in that second parliament that we, we spoke about, the House of Representatives, um, and then was appointed as the Minister of Interior to the Government of National Accord that was established in 2015 during the UN process to unify this first kind of um, a division after Libya's first civil war in 2014. Um, and three months into the job, or four months into the job, Khalifa Haftar attacks the capital. Now, we should remember that the GNA also didn't have a Ministry of Defense. It didn't have a Chief of Staff. It didn't have a Chief of Intelligence. So he was literally the last man standing in terms of Libya's or Tripoli's security. And he goes on to uh, defend the capital from Khalifa Haftar's onslaught. And what begins as just a normal war escalates into a nasty, brutal, personal war of words between Khalifa Haftar and Fatih Bashara. Khalifa Haftar calls the GNA and the units and the forces fighting underneath him that Bashara was leading. He calls them terrorists and says, I will never enter into a dialogue with them. On the other hand, Fatih Bashara calls Haftar a putschist, a coup plotter, a war criminal, someone that he will never meet with. And in fact, on the record, he says, there will be no peace in Libya whilst Haftar enjoys a political role. 
Now, that was in 2019 and 2020. And then the Civil War culminates with a stalemate um, around the summer of 2020. Within six months, there is a UN political process that says, well, there is a rival parliament, a rival government here in the in the east. There's a rival government here in the west. Let's again unify these two separate halves, and they create a political dialogue forum um, where they bring in members of the status quo, Libya's two rival parliaments, to appoint two figures: one president and one prime minister. Fethi Bashaga enters into that race with the head of the parliament. Uh, in the East, who is considered to be Khalifa Haftar's staunchest political ally. So people start scratching their head and they start wondering what happened to all this anonymity. Before the end of that year, before the end of 2021, he is stood, Fatih Bashara is stood in Benghazi, the eastern city that has become infamous for the, the events in 2012 over the mm. last 10 years and is the center of power of, of, uh, of Khalifa Haftar's Libyan National Army. And he shares a handshake with the man that he said there would be no political future for in the country and who that there would be no peace with. And Khalifa Haftar, the man who said that he emerged in Libya, not for his own personal political gain or financial gain, but to fight the scourge of terrorism, which he has said that he will never enter into a dialogue with, and shakes his hand. So the terrorists are shaking the putsch's hands. It's, it's an unusual place in Libya, but it's a place where, you know, um, there are friends with benefits, but there are also enemies with benefits. And that's yeah. what happened with this creation of the government of national stability. These two figures emerge and they have this kind of narrative that surrounds them. I mean, everyone has called Khalifa Haftar, or many people have called him the strongman of the East. But Fethi Bashara, after his um, role in the 2019 civil war, he becomes labeled the strongman of the West. And what happens is that these two strongmen come together, forge an agreement, but they're not strong enough to take the capital. They try to overthrow this government of national unity that was appointed in 2021 under Abdul Hamid Dabeba, the, the current sitting internationally recognized prime minister, and they failed to overthrow him. And what happened beyond failing just to overthrow him, it actually dispels a lot of the myths around the quote-unquote Arab strongman. Um, you know, they're only as strong as their rhetoric suggests. And in a place like Libya where there are no angels on either side of these civil wars, I'll, I'll be very clear about that, but there yeah. are militias that have emerged uh, that fight for greed. And there are certainly militias and armed groups out there that fight for grievance. And there are those that are going to end up supporting the revolution. And there are, the, there are going to be those that oppose it and support a Gaddafi. The question is not who is right and who is wrong. The question is, what are they fighting for and how do you get them to stop fighting? And so that deal that was cut between the two rival strongmen of the last civil war, the two political poles of the last civil war, it failed. And it failed because these two strongmen assumed that they could buy their way out of a civil war. Civil wars are there. There's a lot of political rhetoric that are there. There's always going to be financial gain and there are going to be geopolitical and economic interests that are there in a place like Libya that has some of the highest levels of gold deposits, highest mm -hmm. levels of, of cash deposits in the world. You know, Of course, there's going to be greed, but there's also going to be grievances. And trying to meddle and mold both together and mesh both together has been one of the reasons why we're struggling to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You can't buy out everyone. You can't buy out people that may have supported Gaddafi's regime. They're principled and they believe in what they fought for. And in, and in contrast, you might not be able to buy out those that fought against him and have now fought against Khalifa Haftar and have now fought against Fatih Bashara. But as you can see over a decade, one of the things that no one really looks at is we turn away from these places for a decade and we look back 
and we say, oh yeah, it's you know, it's it's Groundhog Day. It's just two governments. It's just two rivals. They'll fix it eventually. You forget that on a dusty Tuesday in a place like Libya, there are war crimes that are taking place on either side or any of the sides that we've just mentioned that have been there over the last decade. The buildup of those grievances makes those states even more brittle, and it makes it even harder to then address the number of grievances that have been there for the last decade. So when you look at the the the, the rise and the fall and demise of a player like Fatih Bashara, it tells you a couple of things. Strong men beware, and those that are buying, beware of what you're buying, because to be honest, that is a myth that has now kind of come down, crashing uh, on the plate of analysts and diplomats and, and, and commentators across the country and further afield. But also that the serious work that needs to go in, as you mentioned, the serious work and planning that needs to take place after the fact of an intervention like what happened in 2011 or two serious civil wars that have erupted in the aftermath, you can't just put them to you can't put them to bed through a handshake in Benghazi and assume there's nothing else to see here. Everything will be rosy. Well, yeah, why don't we talk about that planning? Because, you know, you have this unlikely alliance, as you might call it, between Haftar and Bashara. And are they in control of some of the oil reserves Mm -hmm. or is it the the UN led um, or the UN supported government in the West and Tripoli that's controlling those reserves? Because, you know, the Libyan Coast Guard, for example, receives an incredible amount of money from the EU and especially from Italy to ensure that people that that people on the move, that asylum seekers don't leave Libya and that they don't arrive in Italy. So they've been or in you know other parts of of the peripheral area of, of southern Europe. So they've been systematically pushed back, and this is of course against international standards, against international norms. It's no refoulement. It's pushing them back to Libya, and and the Libyan Coast Guard has been fully complicit in these crimes, and they're receiving money from the EU to basically you know, do the EU's dirty work and to ensure that people don't leave the country. Mm-hmm. But who, like, who do these people represent? Are they from the West, so to speak? And are they also in control of some resources? And then the most important question would be, are the Libyans themselves, like the Libyan population, are are they benefiting from any of these resources and uh, oil profits whatsoever? Or are they just completely impoverished? So a number of questions you asked, and all of them are, are pertinent and then straight to the point. So I'll try and be as quick as I can to go through them. Number one, I think when it comes to the oil reserves and how they're controlled, that is a really unusual game that is, it, it reflects the ways in which wars are fought now in the 21st century uh, and how different they were fought in the 20th century. Libya is littered with mercenaries and foreign mercenaries. There are Russia's Wagner Group that operate, obviously, in, in Libya. There are other sides and factions that have delivered their own mercenaries, uh, and Libya is littered with militias and and tribes. If you mm. ask Khalifa Haftar when he's blockaded that oil, he said it wasn't me that blockaded it, it was the Libyan tribes. Um, but then he'll put out an order through the Libyan National Army to say that nobody can work on the, uh, in, nobody can work um, from the Libyan military in any of those facilities. Um, in late 2021, I believe, in September 2021, after Libya's oil was blockaded at the end of the of the civil war in 2019 2020 uh, that oil blockade was lifted through negotiations in Moscow so there was an element there of, of, uh, that was hinting at foreign control um, it was blockaded again uh, after Khalifa Haftar and Fatih Bashara established their own uh, GNS the government of national stability that parallel government we spoke about a few moments earlier 
And after they blockaded the oil, um, Khalifa Haftar negotiated with Dubeba, the prime minister in Tripoli, and again, stabbed in the back his own political ally, Fateh Bashaha, and lifted the blockade through negotiations in the UAE between, um, as I said, Dubeba uh, and Haftar. And so now Dubeba and Haftar each control uh, portions of the oil wealth. None of the oil wealth goes to the Libyan people. They're yet to see any of it. I mean, if you look at, uh, basically look at the pictures, you know, across the country, there is nothing that has been built in that country, arguably since the late 70s. I mean, you know, that's that's one of the things that Libya is desperately in need of. If you go to estimates of, of, of Libyan government uh, estimates, Libya is in the region of $100 billion of investment in its infrastructure alone. And that's telling. But what it's telling is that that $100 billion is there. It's in the Libyan mm. coffers. They could spend that money if they wanted to. So much of that money goes into the hands and pockets of Libya's unelected and expired political elites. When it comes to the Coast Guard, it's a very different question. And I think it's really important. One of the, one of the things that the European Union is certainly guilty of, if you look at the UN panel of expert reports, is that not only are they training uh, and equipping the Libyan Coast Guard um, in, in means that are uh, deeply contrary to international humanitarian law, um, Libya's own law and Europe's own responsibilities and maritime responsibilities. But more of, but more peculiar than that is that many of the individuals that are responsible for the smuggling of human tra- uh, 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 smuggling of humans and human trafficking, they're the ones that are are now part of the Libyan Coast Guard. In the west of Libya, you have individuals known as Fad and other people like that. In the town of Zawiya, that is a critical departure point for um, refugees and migrants fleeing to Europe. Um, by the UN's own admission and its own panel of expert reports, there are individuals that were smugglers that attended training courses uh, under the EU and were received by the EU themselves. They've either taken material support or support in kind from the EU. What is getting worse now is that for the first time in, in modern history in Libya, departures are exceeding uh, in the east of the country where there has been a, a smuggling empire under Khalifa Haftar. 60% of departures today, uh, the 57,000 that landed on the shores of Italy uh, 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 over the last over the last year have come from, from Libya, at least 60% from eastern Libya. And so Khalifa Haftar today has moved from being the commander of the Libyan National Army to being the commander of a, of a smuggling network. You would think that that would also irk the European Union or member states. He was received by the Millennium Administration two weeks ago and given red carpet treatment in Rome. So it's it's one of those places where when you look at the political landscape, you look at the political fingerprints on the crimes that have taken place, Libya is like living in the upside down. Nothing makes sense. The more crimes that you pursue, the more spoiling that you pursue, the more reward you get. And so, you know, it, it also tells you a number of other things that the harder you push, the more you can get. And so for every Khalifa Haftar, you have a plastic one sitting behind them thinking, I could be next. And that's damaging. That's why what you were talking about, international norms, they're not just words and abstract terms that people use to describe phenomena in textbooks. They matter on the ground. Because if you keep breaking these rules over and over again, then everyone thinks, if he can do it, so can I. And unfortunately, it is a lot of the Western actors, such as the EU, who they're involved in indirectly or directly with their money perpetrating these crimes against humanity. There was an, a UN report saying that, you know, the crimes against a lot of the migrants and asylum seekers who are detained in Libya amounts to crimes against humanity, rape, all sorts of, you know, inhumane conditions in which they're detained. And yet, 
you know, the, the EU um, policymakers as well as the US policymakers keep talking about this rules-based order, which they stand behind in European values. And it's they're just complete hypocrites when it comes to, yeah. uh, you know, actually trying to implement policy that would foster those values. And another um, area that we could speak about is how um, the EU has welcomed so many refugees from Ukraine who, who have been forced to leave their country. And, and you know, they should accept these people and treat them with with respect and give them asylum. But at the same time, there's been no legal uh, channels for people to live to leave Libya, Libya or other countries in, in Africa that have been, um, you know, stricken by conflict and, and other um, yeah. calamities and, and crises. And it's just unfortunate to see that because the EU has been so present in those regions and in contributing to those crises. And yet, there's a racist element to it because when these people want to come to Europe and seek protection, then it's, you know, oh, these people are just economic migrants, so they're not really deserving of, of any protection. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I think the, 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 the dilemma that I have in my mind, there are two things. The first is that racial discrepancy, it's certainly not lost on an Arab audience because they started scratching their heads and saying, how come, you know, number one, how come we're not received in that way? But number two, they don't want to be received in the first place. They want to stay at home. There's no refugee on earth that ever wants to leave their home and take a boat and, and die, and most likely die, uh, you know, uh, and be ignored and forgotten about and described as uh, as cockroaches, but, you know, by, by other European heads of state and, and otherwise. So there's something that is to be said about the fact that the best way and best policy of reducing uh, a refugee crisis is to prevent the violence from taking place in the first place. And that's where you find, unfortunately, you know, the role of regional Arab states, the role of, of other European states, and the role of the US and Russia in Libya has got its fingerprints all over that. And I think some countries don't care because they're not on the receiving end. I mean, Libya is considered to be NATO's southern flank and Europe's soft underbelly. And so in many ways, the only thing that is of, of, of importance for a lot of policymakers today about Libya is just stabilize it, give it to someone to stop those boats from coming in. Um, and so I think that's really where, you know, when you start to interrogate what their policies could have been over the last several years, why don't you stop the malignant influence of regional actors? Why don't you stop your own malignant influence of, of, of working with smugglers and calling them coast guards? I mean, there's a lot more. And I know, I know this sounds strange saying this is a political analyst, but, you know, in a philosophical sense, there's a lot of soul searching that needs to be mm. done when it comes to not only the, the, the policy making on Libya, but also the rhetoric. Because the rhetoric right. is deeply dehumanizing when it comes to places like Libya, places like Syria, you know, um, if they're called a human, that's the best possible best possible outcome. But more often than not, they're either there's either this kind of like you know wink and a and a, and a nod or whatever at the um, at the idea that they're either terrorists or terrorist sympathizers or parts of mm -hmm. criminal networks, you know, and that's just it's the most deeply dehumanizing thing to say about. You know, uh, those that are fleeing from conflict and fleeing from terror, fleeing from criminal networks and fleeing from violence. Violence that they get perpetuate. It reminds me of uh, Josep Borrell, the, the high representative of Europe. And he gave a speech, I think this was eight months ago or so, in which he characterized Europe as a garden which needed to be protected from the jungle. <laughs> I mean, just that metaphor. It's, it's so colonial. And, you know, as opposed to when he was called out as opposed to apologizing, he sort of doubled down on it and was saying that, you know, he didn't mean it in a racist way, but that Europe represents these these lofty values that need to be protected from you know, places like Libya, alluding to 
the the warfare that and the, the deaths that are you know just the the horrible bloodshed that's going on there but you know he missed out the important part and and that's how europe has contributed to the pre- perpetuation of these crimes in the region but i think the the arab regional actors also play a role the the emiratis the united arab emirates have played a huge role in i think initially they did not support haftar and now they do support haftar and if you look at no, they were the first, actually. They no, were the, they were the first. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. they're also involved in a neighboring conflict in Sudan. Um, so in Sudan, there's a war between the army and uh, the paramilitary rapid support forces, which are led by General Hamedi. And Haftar and Hamedi are also kind of buddy-buddy. So how is the conflict in Sudan playing into the conflict in Libya? So this is this is fascinating for me because I think what it, what it tells you about the uh the the brittle states i mean states where uh, elements like the rsf in sudan or the lna in eastern libya are kind of on the rise is because of these interdependencies that they've created with their patrons it used to be the case that you would think of patron and proxy as being big and small you know and one giving the orders and the other one following the orders it's not quite like that anymore and what happens is that it's much more it's much more flat it's much more heterarchical and it's it's based on these interdependencies that, you know, they're hand in hand, you know, that they each one requires the other and it's much more equal and there's much more equity and dependability on both. So in a, in a nutshell, you know, these, the rise of individuals like Hameti, and I can go through what I think is just in a nutshell how these things are taking place and what the effect of Libya is, but Hameti's history in Libya is longer than his history, arguably politically in Sudan. I mean, he mm. came into Sudan's uh, to, to be uh, involved in Sudan after the events that led to the transition, the the, the, the second revolution or the uprising in Sudan and the uh, establishment of the Transitional National Council there uh, that brought in together the military, the RSF and civilian uh, bodies from the street, from the street protests. Um, but the RSF, it's, it's paramilitary history, goes back to the days of the Janjaweed in South Sudan, but also its days in Libya. I mean, it has been had a longer presence in Libya arguably than it's had in Sudan. And it's fought more wars in Libya, critically, than it has fought in Sudan. It was fighting, Hameti's forces were fighting in Libya in 2019. They were they were brought in as mercenaries. So this isn't just some, you know, two-bit relationship between two people that have some alliance, why well, you, you're an authoritarian, I'm an authoritarian. These guys work together. The second element that is really critical and is important is Khalifa Haftar's son, Sadiq Haftar, was pictured in Khartoum two weeks before the events that led to the the, the, the recent civil war. Sadiq Haftar, according to um, to a lot of journalists that had been reporting about this recently, was in Khartoum to give Hamati a whisper in the ear and give him vital intelligence to tell him, your, your friends, the military, are moving against you. So he gave him the vital intelligence at the time when he needed it and then moved to supply weapons, intelligence, and uh, and fuel supplies from... Libya's southeast border in the town of Kufra, over the border of northern Sudan to the RSF. So in so many different factions and so many different facets, Khalifa Haftar has been critical to helping Hamati stay alert and stay alive, but also to thrive and sustain this latest conflict. So the rise of someone like Hamati is because you have a rise in these kind of new burgeoning strongmen who have created these interdependencies, you need my fuel from mm. Libya, but I need your money because, as we said, 
Khalifa Haftar is not part of this internationally recognized government. He doesn't have any money. He gets his money from the Sudanese military that are paying for the fuel that he's smuggling over the border. You know, and on the other hand, he also gives him intelligence when he needs it. And he's also getting forces, the RSF, when it finishes fighting in, in Sudan, if there's another civil war in Libya, who do you think is going to go and fight it? It's going to be the RSF fighting on behalf of Libya's national army. So it is such an unusual sense of dependability and interdependencies. But these are the kind of new burgeoning alliances in the region that are going to be so difficult to get rid of. And Sudan's own crisis that could have been mitigated, that could have been stopped a long time ago, is most likely now going to spark a migration crisis somehow into southern Europe. And that migration crisis is going to put us right back to square one. Europeans are going to pick up the phone and say, who do we speak to? Let's speak to Haftar. Why? This is the individual that helped spur that war on in Sudan. He's fueled that war. He's also making money out of the migrants that are crossing and the refugees that are crossing the sea. So instead of being the cure, so many of these actors are like the cancer. Yeah, they have too much power and they're exacerbating the situation on the ground. They're controlling everything on the ground and they're building up their power so that when it's time for the EU to actually step in and, and to try to find a solution, then they keep going to the people who are, you know, feeding into this, into the bloodshed. Well, there is ways around it. I think there's no way around political will. There's no way around that. I mean, I think the political will that should have been there a decade ago um, at right now, this is the asset test. I mean, you know, on so many different frontiers, on so many different geopolitical strategic lenses that you can adopt when looking at a place like Libya. As I said earlier on, I mean, you know, the reason why the world's attention is faced on Ukraine is that it is this frontier line. It is considered to be NATO's eastern flank. And no matter which way you look at it, that is a critical border between two major superpowers. On the other hand, Libya is NATO's southern flank. It's also the European Union's soft underbelly, the Mediterranean region. So much of Libya's history has been impacted by European colonial powers, but also by foreign states meddling in their affairs. But you could also argue in the same breath how much of European populism, how much of Europe's recent history with Brexit and, and its own recent history of, of far-right movements rising up, how much of that has been impacted by Libya? They're kind of two, you know, they're kind of like two glasses filling one another at different times. And so these regions are interconnected. What happens in Libya really matters for Europeans and what happens in Europe really matters for Libyans. But they're going to have to change that political will. And when I, I look at a situation like today, I can't think of any more urgency than the fact that you have conflicts that are no, no longer uh, easy conflicts to solve. These interdependencies are not just ways of looking at how friendships matter and, and why these bonds are so deep. What it means is that a place like Sudan, when you get into the nitty-gritty of conflict mediation and resolution, how do you solve a civil war? You bring the two local players together and you say, figure it out. And what they always have to bring in are the civilian parties that are from the street that had no role in that conflict. They should also be the, the they should have their finger on the pulse. They should be saying this is a measure that is acceptable to the broader community and the broader public and the broader society. You can't do that today when you have Ooh. these interdependent networks because what is the difference between what Hameti is doing and what Haftar is doing and what their patrons in the United Arab Emirates who are who are shipping in who are shipping in so many more weapons, ammunition, fuel, as we said, uh, Russia's Wagner Group that is also in, uh, playing a massive and critical role in playing the logistics of not only bringing in weapons and training fighters from the RSF, but also helping take out to the tune of around $17 billion a year 
and illegally exported and mined gold from Sudan and bring it to the market in the UAE where there are shell companies waiting there and where there is the second or third, I think, after Hong Kong, second or third biggest global market for gold uh, in the world. So when you, what you see is this really vicious cycle uh, and interdependencies that when it comes to resolving a conflict, do you speak to Hameti of the RSF? Do you speak to Burhan of the Sudanese military? Or do you have to also bring in Russian mercenaries, Libyan mercenaries, if you want to consider them to be that UAE patrons, the Egyptians that are supporting the other side? I mm -hmm. mean, it just complicates and it crowds the space for conflict mediation. And it's almost like, you know, the old saying of all for one and one for all, because if if I, the, the weakest node in that link or in that chain, as Hameti say, I don't want to keep fighting anymore. You know, then I, you know, then the UAE or Haftar will turn around and say, "Well, no more fuel for you in peacetime, no more gold for you on the international markets." So there is so much more leverage, and there's so much they can't just defect, you know, or they can't just walk away and be ripened. This is really going to make conflict mediation uh, in the coming years. This form of warfare, this alliance building, this kind of new alliances, it's going to make uh, civil war mediation and 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 conflict resolution so much more difficult that we could see long wars on the or what they call forever wars you can mm -hmm. just start seeing forever wars there because no one knows who to negotiate with to end these civil wars and the interdependence is so strong that you can't just get one signature on a paper you need three or four and they might end up not being signed locally they might end up being signed somewhere else so europe needs to wake up because yeah. these are the kind of conflicts that they could have they could have managed a long time ago and they still have leverage in many ways over but the political will and savviness and nous is sorely, sorely lacking in my eyes. Well, the framing needs to shift from these elite who have the resources and control of the military to the civilians as well. I mean, it seems like there's no representative of the civilian populations or civilian structures within any of these negotiations or, or lack of negotiations, yeah. whether it be in Sudan or in Libya. They're just not part of the political process because they unfortunately don't have any control of, of the resources of the country. So the outside actors don't even go to them. They just go to the ones who wield power and, and who have military power. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is that, number. I mean, the last individual that had that kind of appeal in Sudan was Hamadok. Um, he just lost credibility because, again, that lack of power meant that he just was a, a nice civilian face to a military skeleton behind him in the institutions. But when it comes to, you know, the lack of... of um, the lack of uh, or lack of a role for these civilian forces, I would go back to the phenomena of Libya. And I mentioned this earlier on, and I wanted to say with a caveat that there are no angels uh, uh, you know, in a place like Libya when you have a brutal civil war like this. You have crimes being committed across the board. But one has to ask why someone is fighting so you can understand what it will take for them to put their weapons down. Mm -hmm. and, in, and, and it comes back to this point that we were talking about with Fatih Bashara and who he came to represent as this strongman of the West versus the strongmen of the East. In the East of the country, the, the project has been the revival of Gaddafi Jamahiriya. And the Jamahiriya was not the Ray-Bans, it wasn't the Greenberg, it wasn't the you know the outlandish outfits of Gaddafi. It was his socio-political engineering of a patronage structure that led to Libya's, Libya's state being very brittle. It was all personalized underneath him. There were certain tribes that held military power. They probably account for around 12% of the population in the east of the country. Um, and there were certain tribes, 88% of the population that don't consider, consider themselves to be tribal. Or, you know, if, the, if we really delve into what that word means, 
a tribe is a structure above you. So if there is you know, a war or a, an incident revolving around blood, then your tribe gets involved, if you have one. And if you don't, then the courts get involved. 88% of the, of the Libyan people don't subscribe to that model. So calling Libya a tribal society is, is really not accurate in any academic or any meaningful sense. But the mm-hmm. reality is, is that those systems are, are kind of established around this. What happened in 2011 is the other 88% that never had weapons, they developed the capabilities. You know, as we said earlier on, that there was this problem of, of controlling the arms supplies and the arms control in Libya, and they were dispersed. And they, this rise of, of militia and revolutionary armed group took place. But those individuals, they wouldn't consider themselves to be militias. We can sit and talk about them that way and, and academically kind of scrutinize their role and put them into nice nice boxes. But if you ask uh, uh, you know, one of these militiamen yourself and say, what are you? I'm a civilian that's got a gun. You know, and so that that might look like Texas to me. You know, that might be a place where where there's that high proliferation of, of weapons, and each socio-cultural you know lens has to be has to be adopted. But in a place like Libya, where you have a lot of people who have weapons, choose to not use them, but choose to use them at moments. These like big political lightning rod moments, like in 2011 when there was a revolution and there was a choice to be with or against. In 2014, when there was a civil war. Uh, where Haftar rose up in the east of the country, it was with or against. And in 2019, when he came to the west and attacked the, the Libyan capital, it was with or against. And you saw that the small number of militias or, or mercenaries or quote-unquote military forces, they're around 10% of the number of forces that turn up when there's a civil war. So who are the other 90%? They're mm-hmm. civilians that have taken up weapons. And so what matters and the relevance of all of this is that if you don't include their civilian forces in your political debates, they will take up weapons themselves. And if you right. don't include them when they're taking up weapons, then you'll never get the militaries and the institutional stability and security that Europe and the West has been craving from Libya. So it's, again, it goes back to kind of like the basic question, you know, when it comes down to these, these wars, it's planning. It's also understanding that if you don't do something now, things will always get worse before they get better. Um, I just fear that we're, we're so far away from the right kind of diagnosis of the situation that we're nowhere near the cure. And that's that's really kind of what keeps me up at night when it comes to a place like Libya. Well, thank you so much for your time, Anas. It was great speaking to you. And I'm sure there's so much more that we can speak about next time and hope to have you on again soon. Pleasure. Thank you. So thank you for joining me. And Thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you'd like to contribute to this show, you can go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Also, get on the mailing list so that you're notified every time there's a new episode, and like and subscribe to the YouTube channel, TheAnalysis-News. See you next time.